Google Chief Internet Evangelist Vince Cerf is known as one of the fathers of the internet, but he defines the internet differently than most people do. I caught up with Cerf at a National Institute of Standards and Technology symposium when developing trustworthy physical cyber systems, where he delivered a keynote address. And I asked him how cyber threats occurring on the internet will have an impact on the future development of the network of networks. When you say internet, you don't really mean what I think of when I hear internet. When I hear internet, I think of all the routers and all the store and forward devices. And what you're thinking about are the servers and the users' laptops and the mobiles and all this other stuff. That's where the vulnerabilities are for the most part. It's true that there are some issues associated with the domain name system and with routing that need to be mitigated and they are being taken care of. But it's the primarily the operating systems that are subject to attack at the edges of the network where all the real interesting application space is undertaken. We need to do something about that. We have several paths to follow. The first one is to build operating systems that are a lot more paranoid about who they communicate with. The second thing uh, is to build in strong authentication mechanisms into the ecosystem, which typically is going to mean public key crypto, for at least for the present. We need to be able to assure a device or a person that they have confidence that they're communicating with the thing or the person or the entity that they are they believe they're communicating with. So we have to put in a bunch of procedures that will assure that, or at least give a higher probability to. So I don't think that the Internet environment necessarily mitigates against a safe use of these systems. It's just that the ones that we want to rely on are going to have to have better access controls and better authentication and crypto for privacy than many of them do today. In addressing the symposium, SURF listed as a major consideration in building future technology, ease of use. Otherwise, he says, people won't use it. But isn't ease of use one of the big security problems today? After all, many manufacturers build information technology that consumers can easily use, but at the sacrifice of safety and security. There's always been a tension between ease of use and the ability to introduce secure procedures. There may be an irreducible minimum of inconvenience that we have to experience in order to have a secure system. For example, two-factor authentication. On the other hand, you notice that SSL doesn't require your intervention at all. It's automatically invoked by using HTTPS. What happens underneath is a possible exchange of certificates and generation of shared symmetric keys protected by the public keys. There's evidence that you can reduce the amount of interference that the user has to experience. On the other hand, we know that certificate authorities have been compromised. That means we have to work harder at making sure that as we reduce the effort that a user puts into making the system secure, that we don't accidentally make the system unsecure. And I think it's just an inescapable and irreducible amount of annoyance that the users are going to have to put up with. On the other hand, if they understand the risk that they are facing, I hope that they'll figure out that this extra effort is worth it. The complexity of systems being built need to be tailored to meet the security and privacy needs of the users. Surf cites a home security system as one that can provide security, but not necessarily the privacy many homeowners seek. If you had a home security system and it had cameras that you could look at remotely, you wouldn't want the police department to also be able to look at your house while you're in it or when you're even when you're not in it, unless you authorize them to do that. You might authorize them to do that because you're away, or you might authorize them to do that because the alarm system has gone off, someone has broken into the house, or at least the sensors think that someone has broken into the house. At that point, you might want the police to have access. So you want to have systems that will grant ephemeral 
moral access and control, uh, but you want to revoke it when the emergency is over. What responsibility should users take to employ the technology properly? Say, turning off the cameras in their home security system so police can't spy on them when no emergency exists. Or is that too much to expect? Well, it's always a problem that, you know, the users never read the manual until something doesn't work. You know, when all else fails, read the manual or call up the maker or look it up on the website. Obviously, we want to make things as easy as possible for the users. One way to do that is to think through in some detail the various use cases that one can anticipate. And that means working through all of those cases, including emergencies and other failures and everything else, in order to figure out how the system will behave or how it should behave, and then, of course, figure out how it actually does behave when you run it through all those various scenarios. Most of the white ought to be on the manufacturers and not so much on the users, but the users have got to have a reasonable model of how the thing works, otherwise they won't be able to activate it properly. Where's the accountability in this, in the sense of getting manufacturers to design the systems that have this easy use at the same time providing options and security? A manufacturer who wants their equipment to get used will have to think very hard about how to make it usable. If there's competition, eventually you would expect that the devices that are more usable will be the ones that, uh, that succeed in the market. And what I worry about is that a device that's easily used might also turn out to be a device that's easily compromised. So now the forces are in conflict with each other. If, in fact, security and safety and reliability are important, then the manufacturer is going to have to find a way to stand behind their product. And this is, gets to an accountability question, which I think will become increasingly visible as more and more of these devices penetrate the rest of our lives because there's more software circulating around us than ever before, especially the stuff that we carry in our pockets and our briefcases or that we live inside of in homes that are increasingly automated. You mentioned that it's hard to write a program of any length without finding bugs in it. You also mentioned about holding programmers accountable for what they write. How do you hold them accountable? Well, I think there are a bunch of different ways that we can do that. One of them is um, at the corporate level, people who have done a bad job of evaluating their code, testing it, doing everything they can to make sure that it performs properly, might find themselves out of a job. Usually when we want to introduce these kinds of protective measures, not only do we harangue people about it, but we make laws that say if you fail to do the following things, that that's a violation. So we do that, for example, with seatbelts. We tell people, wear seatbelts. We show them movies of what happens if you don't wear a seatbelt. And then we tell them, by the way, if we catch you driving without a seatbelt, there will be consequences. So usually trying to get people's behavior to change involves not only haranguing them on the subject, but also putting in a certain amount of, well, what should we call it, forcing function that says, uh, you know, we will enforce this behavior pattern somehow. Have you seen many organizations doing that with programmers? Uh, not to my knowledge, although I think when you get closer to equipment that is really hazardous, uh, for example, medical equipment or something, I think you get a lot more attention to that at the corporate level. For example, if you look at uh, the Da Vinci robot. The Da Vinci robotic surgical system facilitates complex surgery by using a minimally invasive approach with the surgeon operating on a patient from a console that's made by Intuitive Surgical, there is intense attention paid to safety in systems like that because they know that if the system doesn't work correctly, then it could be a life lost. Depending on the kind of equipment we're talking about, there's going to be an increasing attention to that. As manufacturers create technology that's more complex and sophisticated, Surf says the idea of creating separate internets, perhaps parallel ones, would be needed to enhance security, safety, and reliability. 
of physical manifestation of this concept would be separate highways for driver and driverless cars. Well, I think it's not entirely impractical. We already do this, for example, with HOV lanes or express lanes and things like that here in the Washington area. If we, in fact, want to make use of these self-driving cars, but we think that they can only handle a certain amount of complexity in the environment and understanding what's going on in the environment, then isolating those cars from cars driven by people might actually make a fair amount of sense. Now, it may be impractical to do that on every street, but you can imagine depot-to-depot kinds of of arrangements where, in fact, you could constrain the traffic. It may be someday that it will be illegal for humans to drive cars because they're unreliable. In the 1970s, Cerf was a manager at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. There, he co-developed with Robert Kahn TCPIP, the transport protocol that makes internet communications possible. I ended my conversation with Cerf, asking him that when he developed TCPIP more than four decades ago, did he envision the vulnerabilities and threats users of the internet face today? Well, the honest answer is yes. And the reason that I can say that confidently is that this project was originally intended for military use. And we were fully conscious of the uh, risk factors of attackers going after the network and the radio systems being jammed and so on. However, the, some of the mitigations uh, were originally developed in the mid-1970s with NSA. And those mitigations turned out to have been classified using equipment that was not available to the general public. And so for a while, it was schizophrenic because there was a specific architecture that, and uh, instantiation of internet that was usable for the military, which was not available to the general public. Moreover, there were a lot of students who were working in this system while I was running the program at ARPA, and they didn't have clearances anyway. And on top of that, this was being deployed primarily in the academic community, and no one expected students to be very well behaved when it came to security. So a lot of the evolution of the network was outside of the boundaries of the military applications. Now, of course, with the cyber-physical systems everywhere and the internet everywhere, we are much more conscious of the need to make the system more secure than it has been. And there's a lot of work going on in the Internet Engineering Task Force to achieve that objective. And so I anticipate over the course of the next decade or so that we will actually see a lot more mechanism in place in order to enhance security and privacy and safety. So you see things being much more secure than they are today? I hope so. And of course, if it isn't, then at some point people will decide that it's not an environment that they find uh, you know, worthy of trust, in which case they'll look for something else. Maybe something will replace the Internet that's more secure than it is today. Do you have any kinds of what that could be? I have no clue. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. You're welcome. That's Internet pioneer Vint Cerf. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Eric Chabro.